Uh, do sit down. What we're looking at uh, for the next uh, while is on the white sheet that you would have heard, seen the reading from. And then if you turn it over, look, it's got the five points I'm going to speak on. So if you compare both, you can tell how long's left in the talk. So it's either a cause of panic or joy. You go, oh, he's on point three, we're nearly there. So that's what it's there partly to do, partly to help you, and mostly to help you follow the story. Um, the hope of a second chance is the theme of this morning, as you've seen from beginning to end. And um, since uh, Paul and I were chatting about football, we met for the first time for years earlier on. Uh, don't worry if you're not sporty, it's the last sporty thing I'll do. Uh, but we were talking about second chances, and he said about the tennis. And I remembered a second chance I got, which was, um, if you're sporty, was class. This is what happened. Um, Cambridge United, uh, if you've got a Guinness Book of Records at home, have a look in it. Um, Cambridge United, October 83 to March 84. It's a long time, right? October 83, March 84. 36 games, League and Cup, 36, in the championship. Didn't win one. <laughs> and I played in them all. Well, I was subbed four times. We were rubbish. And in the middle of this, we had to play Newcastle United away. They were top. They'd just been relegated. They were going straight back up. Kevin Keegan was captain. They were absolutely brilliant, way ahead of the top of the league. So we went there, and uh, naturally, uh, we're 2-0 down in about 20 minutes. But then they got a bit cocky, you know. They started just doing a bit with the ball and showing off and chat, 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 chat. And just before halftime... I don't know how our keeper must have kicked it a long way or something. Anyway, it ended up in their box, which is quite remarkable. It was in their penalty area. And I've run into the area, centre forwards headed it down. And I'm only about two yards out. And you could have blown the ball in. And I got rather excited, swung at it, and hiked it miles over the bar, <laughs> which would have made a crucial difference, 2-1 at half time. So we came out second half, not expecting another chance at all. And then a marvellous thing happened. In training every week, we used to practice like this. Two people stand on the halfway line, kick it right or left. Somebody runs down the touchline, kicks the ball back into the middle. The two people on the touchline run towards the goals. The ball comes in, you head or shoot, miss, start again. And we would do that regularly. And if you scored, you could go home. It was at the end of the training session. So we were often there quite late. You know, quite late. But. Anyway, on this particular occasion, the ball went to the right, and our winger beat the left fullback. Astonishment. And a few of us went, oh, fair play. Fair play, Cookie. He's beaten the fullback. Oh, we're supposed to be playing. Run. <laughs> so we ran for the box, and there it was. A glorious second chance. Their goalkeeper was a real proper professional goalkeeper, so he took up the orthodox position for a cross. But since Cookie had beaten the fullback, there was no chance of doing two things right. So he hit the cross wrong, completely wrong. And it went along the floor instead of in the air. So the goalkeeper changed his position, adapted, went to dive on the ball, went too late, it bounced on some mud, bounced over him, and there I am. One yard from the goal. 30,000 people, Newcastle United away. Come on! I've had one chance, here comes the second. But of course, you know, if you play sport at all, you must watch the ball. 
and I was too excited, you see, and I didn't watch the ball, and I swung my left leg at it, and it hit me on the thigh from about a yard, and it went straight up in the air, and it hit the underside of the crossbar, then the inside of the post, then came back across the goal, and the goalkeeper had time to take up a wrong position, then the right position, then a third position. It was so poor. Bar post, he dived, hit him on the hand, went in. <laughs> yes, it went in. Now, to get a second chance, to get one chance against them was amazing. To get two chances and to spoon them both was outrageous because the second one actually got in the net. Now, naturally, we lost, but it's quite a good story of a second chance, isn't it? Second chances, they can be funny, they can be desperately serious. Have a look at our story, and, and let's try and dig out of it from this uh, marvelous story, really, about what it might mean to somebody today, to you and me sitting in the room. Uh, verse 11, the 11 at the top there, this is one of the accounts of the life of Jesus by Luke. Number 11, verse 11, Jesus continued. Now, if Jesus continued, we better find out what he was continuing, and it's not on the page, which is my fault. So what he's continuing is a discussion with his enemies. Let me read you a couple of lines from the start of the chapter. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Here's the context of the story we're about to look at again this morning. If you were a tax collector at this time, it meant you collaborated with the occupying forces, which were the Romans. The Romans were occupying the country. If you lived in a neighborhood of a city and you were Jewish and you knew who earned what and who had what money, you told the Romans, they give you a cut of the tax, you were quids in, but you were the lowest of the law. There were people in that society called outcasts or sinners who weren't considered good or clean enough to be part of the establishment. And these are the people who are absolutely captivated by Jesus. The people who aren't are called the Pharisees and teachers of the law. They would be the religious establishment. They were committed guys. They wanted to do things right. But their perception of those who were outside was that they had no chance whatsoever of receiving any kind of relationship from God to them. Now, I'd love at the start of the talk to get rid of the idea of religion or religiousness, religiosity. It's a sociological construct. We're men and women in this room. We're, we're human beings. We're, we're people with all the highs and the lows and the ups and downs of life. If you've been coming to church for 50 years, or this is your first time in a church in your life, or for some years, look, we're just people. And it's hard, but let's get rid of the idea now of the religious and the irreligious in the room. Quite hard, but worth a try. Because if we can, this story speaks volumes. The people who have the most empathy with what Jesus is about is those who know they have a need. Jesus once said, it's not, the, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Meaning, those who know that they are not perfect, that it's not all brilliant, that you have dug yourself some holes that maybe nobody knows about, but it's almost impossible to climb out. 
You've been successful in the past. You've got out of a scrape. But you've got into a scrape and you say, do you know what? This is a nightmare. And there won't be a human being over a certain amount of years on this planet who doesn't empathize with that scenario. It may be amazing for you to, to hear such a context now, concept as this, but God is interested in people who know they need help, not in the person who says, well, I'm in control, I can pull it all off, it's a breeze, I don't need any help. Religion, crutch, Christianity, weak. Listen, that's not me, my friend. Get a grip on yourself. Stop being such a wuss. Look, we're not children, mostly, in the audience. And if you've lived a certain number of years, you just know, you've just been there, that it can be majestic or tragic. One day can change to the next. And most of the time, nobody knows but you or one or two intimate friends or family close to you. The message of Christianity is for people who know. No, no, I won't embarrass you. No, Paul won't. No, no one will do anything to make you embarrassed about this. But I will urge you as we look at this story now, try and think of being in this man's shoes in the story and try and identify with the villain of the story, not the hero. Because when you hear a story, it's instinctive to go, I'm just like the hero. Think of the villain in the story. Now, let's have a look at him then. Look with me at the page if you want to see where we're at on the story now. Uh, and we'll get to the first heading, then we fly in just a moment. Here's the background. You heard it read. There was a bloke who had two sons. And uh, number 12, the younger one said to his father, give me my share of the estate. Will you die? Can you just die? I'd love you to die. I want the money. Can you just go? I mean, it's horrendous. It's just horrendous. We've got a few minutes to give the talk, but let's not cut the bones on this. Fancy turning to a parent and saying, just die because I want the money. And saying it. Not thinking, it's saying it. I need to pay a few bills off. That's what he does. And the dad does it. Verse 12. He does it. He divides the property. How gracious is that? Not long after the boy gets everything together, sets off for a distant country. Now, I don't suppose I need to explain this. He squandered his wealth in wild living. Verse 13. Is that all right? Can you do your own sums? He squandered it in wild living. He had a bit of a jolly with it. But then, verse 14, he's skint. Something's gone wrong. There's been a famine. And 15, he has to get a job feeding pigs, which is a terrible job for a Jewish boy because they don't eat pork. And it can't sink to any lower. He wanted to eat the pig's food because he was so hungry and nobody was there to help. Then 17, he comes to his senses and starts to work a plan. My dad's got lots of workers. I'll go back and say to him, 18, I've sinned against you, against God. Give me a job, please. Verse 19, and he goes to his father. And then his father sees him, verse 20, and runs down the drive with him and grabs him. Come here. 21. He says, I'm so sorry. And 22, the father says, quick, chuck him in a shower, get the best clothes on. Give him an identity ring that he's in my family. He was lost and he's found, verse 24. Get everybody in for a party, the biggest party we can have. 
And that's the story, that's the overview. And we could end right there and say, what a lovely lesson in life. You know, for parents whose children have grown up, or for a child who's been on the receiving end of parenting, what are those fractures like when it goes wrong? How horrible is it when you cannot, you cannot, you have a child who you love, and they will not come to their senses, and however much you love them, they cannot see. And you cannot make them love you. Love has to be reciprocal. It has to be voluntary. And no one can make another love them. If it's a husband and wife, if it's two best friends, if it's two work colleagues, let's take the, the things to a whole range of social relationships. When relationships break down, unless somebody is willing to move, however much the other loves them, it cannot be fixed, the fracture stays. And there can't be many of us in the room who can't say, oh God, I've had some terrible, terrible heartache over relationships that I can't mend. And it brings pain, right? I mean, there are some trivial examples, aren't there? You, you know, the little domestic where, let's give it a scale, it's a, it's a one hour quiet argument, one hour pouting. It's not that serious, but you just withdraw a bit. Just keep a bit quiet. And how hard is it to say sorry? It's hard, isn't it? This is what you do, isn't it? You say, um, after about an hour, you say, do you want a cup of tea? <laughs> yeah, I'll have a cup of tea, yeah. I'll have a cup of tea. Good, all right. A biscuit? Yeah, I'll have a biscuit. Good. And then you don't say anything about the argument. You just crack on, but you've sort of slowly made up because you've had a cup of tea and a biscuit. You're edging your way back to normality. You know, it can be really trivial, but the very triviality of it, of course, shows that mending a fracture is so counterintuitive. To say, sorry, help. Now, in this story, we see a relationship mended, and it's meant to remind us that God doesn't count you as non-religious or religious or churchgoer or non-churchgoer. He just says, I want to mend a relationship with you. Do you want to take a step? So let's see the story. Yeah, we're, we're in, we're in, we're in. 17 to 19, he came to his senses. Let's read from here then. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. Oh, he's in a mess. He slipped into a mess. He's in a state. If his friends could see him now. You know the things that no one can see. The things, he's away from home, you see. No one's around. He can't be spotted. He can't be exposed. Many of our problems lay dormant for a long time before they're out into the open. And I'm not talking if you're visiting here for the first time. Please don't make that line. I'm talking about all of us. We're people. You're in a hole somewhere. You're not coming out of it in a hurry. But taking responsibility for it is so hard, isn't it? It's somebody else's fault. How long do we go? It's not my fault. They did it. She did it to me. It's his fault. It all went wrong. What could I do? She asked for it. He made me do it. This boy does the one thing crucial to coming back to the one who would pour his love on him. If he's willing to see the source of hope. See the line? Can you see it? He came to his senses. Verse 17. He switched on 
He looked in the mirror squarely, truly, and said, maybe it's my fault. Maybe there's something wrong. Maybe I shouldn't have abused my dad. Maybe I slaughtered him when I said, I wish you were dead. And when he comes to his senses, he realizes, I'm starving to death, verse 18. He's come to the end of his own resources. You see, my friends, when Jesus tells this story in front of his enemies, his enemies who say, you hang out with people who really shouldn't be counted as people who God has anything to do with. Jesus tells this story very deliberately with two other stories to say, boys, you've got it entirely wrong. The only people Jesus hangs out with are the people who know they need somebody greater than them that they can turn to and are not ashamed to look in the mirror and say it. Now, in this last week, how many times has this been a reality for each one of us? Blew it again. Said the wrong thing. Did the wrong thing. Could be trite, could be serious. It's indicative of a fracture. And you've got to come to your senses and realize, I don't have all the resources required, always, to mend the issues. Sometimes with younger people, you have to unpack this idea a little bit more, you know. But with people who've lived a little while, you really don't. You just have to say words like, you get in a hole, sometimes you can dig yourself out, sometimes you can't, and you come to the end of your tether. And something in the human soul doesn't need to debate the arguments for the existence of God or the counter-arguments against Dawkins, though they're important things to discuss and think through. It's a reasonable faith that Christian has. But equally, we don't overlook the intuitive things that say, there's more than this. There is more than this. I've tried it. I've got the T-shirt. I've been there. I've had a go. It just isn't enough. There is more. I keep getting caught in the same snares. What is there? Who am I? Where is it? And at the heart of this intuition somewhere is God saying, there is more. And you don't need to be the religious type. You just need to be a human being who realizes that sometimes at the end of your tether, you look up and you say, could I get a second start? Could I get another chance? Could I begin this life all over again? Could it be mended? Can I be forgiven for the hurt that this has just caused? The answer in the Bible is a resounding yes. Yes, never too late. Always a chance to look up. Always the opportunity of a new start. Every day. And this morning, again, God lays before me and you the opportunity to come to our senses, to realize we cannot honor God and each other, and that he is willing to do something about it, to mend it. If you hear anything here that's a draw, Listen to that little voice that draws you. Because we're now at the heart of being truly alive. Peace, because of guilt, forgiven. Cleansing with God, the chance to restore relationships by his strength in me. Out of sheer love, 
Verse 20, he did something about it. Our second heading, he did something about it. You see this in 20. He got up and went to his father. How many times have we said, I'll fix it, I'll sort it, I'll take responsibility. I'll go to her and say sorry. I'm going to go to work on Monday, I'm going to face up to it, and I'm going to say to him, you know what happened six months ago? I'm really, really sorry it's caused this thing between us. You go to your partner or your child and you say, I'm so sorry that I said that last week. The consequences can be beautiful. But how hard is it to do it? I mean, it's unbelievable how stubborn we are, isn't it? Isn't it outrageous how stubborn you are when you know when you make up it's so magnificent, but that incredible pride inside goes, no chance. She'll go first. I mean, just amazing. And you see, it's indicative of our stubbornness towards our Creator. He loves us. He gives us breath. He gives us life. He gives us everything we've got. But turn to him and say, I could be out of order. I could just be wrong to turn my back on you. You could be the only one who I can turn to, to have a meaning to this life that helps me dig out of the holes that I get into. I mean, it just could be, and I could have to say sorry to you. I want to say sorry. He got up and went to his father. It's the crucial turning point. Coming to your senses is one thing. How many times do you say, I'll sort it, I'll sort it, I'll sort it? How many times perhaps have you said about God, I would like to sort it, actually. I would like to have a relationship with God through Christ. You know, I, I've heard bits and pieces. I think I'm going to do something about it. But doing something, another matter. Not today, maybe tomorrow. It's not my type. What would happen if I did? Weeks, months, years, the grave arrives. No sorting. This isn't just for young people. It's for people who've been years and years saying, I'm interested, I I'm church-going sometimes, I, I say a prayer, I but I know the fracture's not mended. I haven't gone to him. This boy goes, and look what happens when he goes. Here comes an amazing new start. Look at 20 to 21. He got up and went to his father. But notice he's rehearsed his speech. Verse 18, I'll go back to my father and say, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy of being your son. Give me a job. So he went to his father, and verse 20, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him, ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. When the boy's walking towards the drive, he doesn't know what we know. He doesn't know his dad's going to kiss him. When he's walking towards that drive, he's rehearsed his speech. And when he sees his dad lifts his claws up and run in that culture, for a wealthy man, the lord of the manor, to lift up his claws and run was unheard of. It lacked all dignity. And the boy could easily have thought, he's coming to kick me up the backside and send me packing because he can see how stinky I am and he must see that I've had it and I've blown it. We know the end. His dad absolutely flies down the drive. Now, any of you have had a fractured relationship where the other party simply doesn't want to come back. That won't be all of us, but any of us who've been there now. When you love till your heart breaks, and they will not come back, and they come. There'll be a few of us who know it, and there'll be a few of us in agony because it hasn't happened. And they come. 
and the overwhelming, unbelievable explosion of joy in the soul that it's fixing. And his dad just grabs him and says, oh boy, waited years for you. Awesome love. Complete love. Notice in 21, he doesn't any longer say, give me a job. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Verse 19, he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Give me a job. Do you know what's dawned in him? He doesn't have to ask for a job. He doesn't have to earn the right. He doesn't have to chip away for 30 years to make up for it, to get his dad to love him again. Now we're at an absolutely critical turning point in our understanding of Christianity. Christianity is not spelt D-O. Everything in us says Christianity is what I do to make God love me. If I try harder, if I do better, if I do stuff, maybe I'll get a pass mark and God will accept me. Ladies and gentlemen, it is the antithesis of the Bible. Here's the Bible's message. There's nothing you can do. It has all been done for us. God loves us so much and he knows we have no chance of ever being good enough that he personally in Jesus Christ came into the world. The one who tells this story talks of his own heavenly father and the one who dies on a cross at the height of his powers as a human being dies there for the boy who ran away and abused his father. Jesus died because you and I take the mickey inadvertently or on purpose sometimes from the one who gave us everything we've got, every breath in our body, every bone that we have, he gave it to us. And we say, I'll take the money I'll take my talents. It's my life. Thank you. Respect, but thank you very much. And the Bible says we are guilty against our Heavenly Father, our perfect, perfectly moral Heavenly Father. And we will not say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Here's the key. If a man or a woman or a boy or a girl says, I am sorry, I've looked in the mirror, come to my senses, I'm at the end of my tether, I'm nervous about what will happen if I come back, but I'm coming back. Please forgive me and please accept me. Can we be reconciled? God ran down the drive onto a Roman cross out of sheer amazing love that justice might be done and you and I could come back at no charge to us. If you've known this for a few years, you just find yourself reflecting again, perhaps. If you're coming to terms with the idea 
didn't mind leaving a second of silence. Me, in a relationship with the creator of the universe, what? The creator of the universe, dying a disgusting bloody death, instead of me. But it should have been me. And he forgives me. And he wants to start a new relationship with me. And he wants me to flourish. Because look what happens next. 22. The past is forgotten. Because the price has been paid. The son won't have to make up for what he's done wrong. Jesus himself died on a cross to obliterate the penalty for everything we've done wrong. Everything you've ever done. All the guilt that you carry. All the nonsense that you've caused. All the pain that you've made. All the pain against you that has crippled you can be dealt with by a new life, a new start in accepting Christ. Coming to your senses and saying, please, please, I accept that you will die for me. I accept that you beat death. And I accept that you will start a new relationship with me. And I've got a brand new start, a second chance in life, even at my age, even with what I've done, me. Look what he does. He rips off the filthy coat. Put the best robe on him. He's stinking. And he knows he's stinking. That's the point. The Pharisee didn't know he was stinking. I know this is an unfortunate way to put it this morning. Do you know you stink? You may have thought that meant you had no chance of being right with Jesus Christ today. Do you know what? Gives you the best chance in the universe. Because if you think you don't, it's so hard. If you know you do, and you're conscious of it, whoa, you're close. And if you followed him for 30 years, right now you'd be thinking, man, the things I've done this week, you know what he says to you? Come here. I died for you. I died for you. Stop trying to do stuff to put yourself right with me. It's done. Are you dim? It's done. Accept it now. Start again this morning. That's why we come to encourage each other on a Sunday morning. A fresh start every day in Christ, not earned, all free, all given, all from him, not at all earned. Look in the mirror, come to your senses, run home, there he is. Ah, yeah, let's start again. And for some of us, it may be the first time we ever see that you don't have to be the religious type. You don't have to be this kind of person. This is about the human race and its creator and its savior and its rescuer and your greatest friend. Put a ring on his finger, he says. The family ring. Right, we're coming out where we came in. The family ring is mine. I sat next to a Bible basher on the bus when I was 15. And some years later, I think, this is for me. Me? It can't be for me. And it dawns on you that if you look very squarely in the mirror and come to your senses and know that there's much more... And there's so many things to fix and so much wrong and so many things that aren't fulfilling when you go around the cycle of trying them that there is somebody who's saying, will you come here? Do you not know? Now, you've sussed it, haven't you, boy? I know you inside out. I know you. I know it all. I know the holes. I know the ambitions. I know the failures. I know the spite. I know it all, boy. Are you coming back or what? You see, I died for you. I love you. Come on. Come here. And when you move at him, he flies down the drive and goes, aya. And you think, goodness me, I knew you all along. I didn't quite put it together somewhere. I just knew you were there. And look how the story ends. 
bring the fattened calf and kill it. Now, obviously you wouldn't do that today, uh, but you would get the best meat and have a great party, right? That's the big deal. Let's have an outrageous party. This son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, so they began to celebrate. Isn't it great that what we call religion is about celebration? Of course it's about celebration because it's about a new start. Not guilty. Somebody took my place. Somebody paid the price. Not guilty. And a friendship with the creator of the universe who comes to live in you and be your coach and mentor and friend minute by minute, hour by hour, week by week for the rest of your days. And when you make a mess of things, which we inevitably do regularly, he's the one who says, now stop it, come to your senses, come here, who died for you? Who took your place? Who's done it? What do you have to do? Accept me. I have accepted you, I accept you. I'm trusting in you as my savior. Start again on Sunday, let's go. It's free. Now that is celebration, not duty, right? That is joy, not obligation. Christ, my savior and my friend. The hope of a second chance is the heart of a human need, a human desire, and a human hope. Jesus loved hanging out with people who knew this was something they needed. And if there's a hint in any of us today that it's what we need, whether you've been going to church for 50 years or five minutes, this is a truth that revolutionizes and fixes the fracture deep in a human soul. At the bottom of the little headings, as I close, uh, let me draw your attention to three things. That even if it's the smallest inch forward in your understanding of these things and how they relate to you, there are three options there for you to tick and put an email or an address or a phone number or all for somebody to give you the chance to make a next step. Not a big step, a baby step. But if it helps, it may just be worth taking that step in the hope of a new beginning, of a second chance. Let's uh, say a prayer, or I'll say a prayer for us, and hand back to Paul to draw our meeting to a close. Thank you, Lord, for your word, the Bible. Thank you for the brilliant truths that are communicated in it right to the heart of the human soul and in such a marvelously constructed way of storytelling and truth through the words. I pray for myself and I pray for every one of us in the room that we might glory in new beginnings and second chances this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.